For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. In an idyllic place, a mother disappears from the family home. Her kids had come home from school. She wasn't there. That was unexpected. The door was left open. She was meant to be collecting her child from school. She didn't turn up. Police were called to the address. Later that evening, Nat, the father, her husband, had been contacted. He was staying elsewhere at the time. Thereafter, uh, the investigation into her as a missing person began because it was totally out of character. Arlene Fraser, a family woman, had simply vanished. Nobody could explain where Arlene was. Weeks earlier, she'd been attacked. Was there a link? Arlene was just an ordinary mum. Why would someone attempt to murder her a month before and then she goes missing? In a case which frustrated detectives, a specialist lip reader used by Britain's security services, her identity protected, was drafted in to help uncover the truth. And another point, he actually mimed during his wrist when he was talking about cutting up the bones. What had happened to Arlene Fraser? Detectives fear she's been abducted, murdered. And if she has, how will they solve the mystery? Every investigation is like a jigsaw, each piece offering new evidence as a picture of a suspect emerges. But which one will reveal the killer's mistake? Nobody should die that way. I've never seen anything that horrific. One of the duties of a pathologist is to determine the cause of death. Watch on mobile devices or the big screen. All for free. No subscription required. Download Bailey now. Two hundred miles from Elgin in the northeast of Scotland on a blustery April evening, Carol Gillies is at home near Glasgow. Her life is about to change. It all started with a knock on the door. There was a policeman standing there from Strathclyde Police and he'd said, um, your sister's been reported missing. Right away, I felt that was it. You know, Arling wouldn't go missing. And she had two children that she loved. Nothing added up. At her home in Smith Street, Elgin, the minutiae of Arlene Fraser's life including vital medication, were discarded. If she'd really disappeared and run away, she would have packed the medicine she needed for her Crohn's disease. She would have packed her spectacles. 
she wouldn't have left her door open. She would have made arrangements, you think, as a, as a loving mother for her child to be picked up from school. There were all these things that were very suspicious. A 14-year riddle of the mother who had disappeared had begun. What followed saw a cat-and-mouse game between killer and investigator. Would a murderer's mistake be uncovered in a story which begins with an inexplicable scene? It was as if she had just been spirited away. Some of her clothing was, was in the bathroom, just folded and ready to be presumably worn. It looked like she had been in the middle of some housework. The vacuum cleaner is plugged in as if she's just kind of stopped using it midway through cleaning. Arlene was a creature of habit. She had a set routine and she went missing on a Tuesday morning. Now, a Tuesday morning was pretty much the only period of time that she would have been at home alone or known to be home alone by those who, who knew her. She went to college. She had uh, the kids, obviously, in the evenings and the weekends. So... The period of time that she would have had peace at home was really very much only on a Tuesday morning and then she always met a friend for lunch in the town. From looking at all Arlene's her life and the way she lived her life, I mean, she, she'd been a mother for 10 years. Um, she was going back to college. Um, she was doing that on a, a Tuesday. She was trying to build up her, her own wee life. The kids were now both at school. There was a strangeness around the house, but it, it, there was no upset. There was no signs of violence. There was nothing knocked over. There was certainly no crime scene. It just looked like the house had emptied. On the day itself, April 28th, police had little option but to ask for all of the relevant forces to be on the lookout and then alert the public of Arlene's disappearance. Perhaps she would return. First thing you might consider is that they've just they've just run away. Maybe they've run away with someone else. Maybe they've just run away by themselves. They just want to start a new life. 24 hours went by. Still no sign of Arlene. The next day, it was becoming a little bit more sinister in the sense that there was just no obvious explanation why Arlene hadn't come home. The practicalities of a mother who suddenly vanishes from a family home present an immediate problem for those called in to help, like what to do with two school-aged children. We collected the kids, um, Jamie and Natalie, and obviously they needed night clothes, uh, school uniform, etc. Um, they're both standing in the doorway with two plastic bags. They just looked so bewildered and so lost as what was happening, bearing in mind Natalie was five and Jamie was ten, you know. Um, for me, you know, that just rubber-stamped it, that this was not Arlene's doing. There was no way Arlene would do this to her children, absolutely no way. She loved her two children, and there's no way she would have left the children. She was going to run away. She would have taken the children with her. So I knew right away... Um, that uh, Arlene was dead. Dead. Arlene's father feared she was dead within a day of her disappearance. When evaluating the case, it's important to understand why there was such disbelief that Arlene would simply run away. It would have meant leaving a 10 and 5 year old in an empty house because the children's father was not living in the family home. Nat Fraser, Arlene's husband, 
was someone investigating Detective Alan Smith, based in Glasgow, knew all about from his days as a local policeman in Elgin. Understanding Nat Fraser becomes vital to uncovering a killer's mistake. My first uh, conversation with Nat Fraser, the husband, was probably a matter of days after I arrived up in Elgin. I'd known Nat from a previous life. He was a, was a local businessman. He was involved in the delivery of fruit and veg to local businesses. He was a popular individual in Elgin. Uh, he played in a local band, a music band, at weekends. So he was a, he was a popular individual in the, t in the town. Nat Fraser was an incredibly manipulative man who could make friends quite easily. He set up a business, it was very successful, and, and none of these things go against his general personality. He wasn't one of those people who was a loner, who kept himself away from people. He very much the opposite. He was out there, he was in control, he was the boss, he was the master of what was going on. But he was no longer master in his own home. Arlene had seen a solicitor. She wanted a divorce. Nat had beaten her. Charged with attempted murder, later downgraded to assault, he was living out of the town on bail. Nat Fraser had a very definite history that would have raised him as a potential risk to his wife. Some of the things that um, were reported about him and his behaviours would even, I think, have made him a high risk to his wife. That assault was a very, very serious one. He had put his hands around her throat and, and threatened her life. The police begin to build up this picture of an unhappy relationship, one which she was trying to escape, and a potentially violent partner. But when his wife disappeared, Nat had his sympathisers. He was a popular man. When locals and the police asked about Arlene, Nat would answer, revealing how tormented he was. There's two sides to Nat Fraser. There's the, the public Nat Fraser, the, the, the hell fellow well met, the popular van delivery guy. Everybody in the, in, in the town thinks he's a cheeky chappy, always cracking a joke, flirting with the ladies. That's one side of Nat Fraser. The other side that we began to uh, unearth as we looked very much more closely into him as an individual is that there was very much a dark side, a dark side to the private Nat Fraser. Uh, and what we saw there was, was, was quite alarming. He, he clearly had a history of domestic abuse. Arlene had been subjected to domestic abuse on many occasions. He was a controlling individual. He didn't necessarily have any real loving or emotional investment in Arlene herself. And there was strong evidence of controlling and coercive behaviours and violence. Knowing all of this, why was Nat Fraser not immediately a significant person of interest to the police? Irrespective of, of our hunch, you've got to follow the evidence. And the evidence that we had was very, very thin. We didn't have a crime scene. We, we didn't have any witnesses. We didn't have any forensic evidence. We didn't have any CCTV uh, that, that helped us. We didn't have any confessions. So we, di we didn't have a crime. So our first challenge as an investigation was, is Arlene alive or has she gone missing? 
There was something else which deflected suspicion from Nat Fraser. He had an alibi. He was known to be out of town, delivering fruit and veg the day that Arlene went missing. He was accompanied by a van delivery boy. His vehicle was seen on CCTV at a particular location on that particular day. He was on a telephone call to a lady who he'd previously had a relationship with but hadn't phoned in, in years uh, and ironically never phoned again. So he made sure that he was marking his scent that morning. Detectives were in constant dialogue with Nat Fraser, but if something sinister had happened to Arlene, he had made no mistake to put him in the frame. She had gone missing. There was nothing to say to the contrary. He was not a suspect for, for months and months and months because there was no evidence. Why had a doting mother walked out on her children? Was husband Nat involved in her disappearance? Where was Arlene Fraser? Detectives with little to go on in the hunt for Arlene Fraser simply kept a watching brief on her husband, Nat. His demeanor did not compute with what they knew had been going on behind closed doors on Smith Street. Nat's behaviors were odd around the time that, that she was reported missing. Now, on the evening that she was reported missing, he was staying with a friend and he had received a phone call that Arlene had gone missing. Now, in the context at that time that they were a couple going through a divorce and there was no love lost there between them, bizarrely, he went straight into the Telgen where she lived and within no time at all that evening, he was checking the hospital. He was showing all signs of distress and, and concern, which was completely out of character. After only a few days, he seems kind of very blasé about the whole thing. And he goes from being the extremely concerned partner to police actually having to contact him to give updates on the case. A few weeks later, he's making jokes to friends about, oh, the kids will get used to her being away and so on. Um, that's not the behaviour of somebody who's genuinely worried about their partner and the fact that they've been missing for several weeks now. The media locally and nationally began to speculate but not about Nat Fraser. Coverage focused on the mother who'd abandoned her children. There was a lot of bad press about Arlene, which was, you know, it was hard to, to read. There was talks of her being on drugs, which was just ridiculous, you know, absolutely ridiculous, um, about having boyfriends, things like that. Where were the stories coming from? None other than Nat Fraser. And, of course, naturally... Uh, those who know, know Arlene, that would make no sense. So he introduced some elements to, to, to create an impression that she was involved in drugs, that she was promiscuous, that she was involved in other relationships. He blackened her character. I think these things come with the territory, but at the time you don't realise that. You just have to, you know... If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen sort of thing. So we just tried our best to kind of rise above it. But undoubtedly, this was part of Nat's plan to create an impression, plant a seed that Arlene was into amphetamine, into drugs, which was never the case because we were able physically to, 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 to get samples of Arlene's hair from a hairbrush post-disappearance. 
and that evidence scientifically told us that Arlene was not involved in drug abuse. Similarly, the, the relationships that he suggested and others close to uh, Nat suggested she was involved in never came to anything. Detectives wondered why Nat Fraser would start these stories. As the months passed, Nat pushed a plausible story. Arlene had run away. It became vital to him that the picture he painted of Arlene was seen to be true amongst the community, including the police. Arlene's betrayal of her family was a story which Nat repeated to anyone who would listen. They believed, through fantastic propaganda by Nat Fraser and his close friends, that this woman had up sticks, abandoned her kids, disappeared, leaving him and the kids with a difficult situation. So she was being painted as a prior. Fraser embellished the story as the anniversary of her disappearance neared. Arlene had funded her new life with a stash of Nat's cash taken from his house. But Arlene's father, Nat's father-in-law, a quiet man, told a different story. I knew that Arlene hadn't run away, despite what Nat Fraser was saying. I just knew because she would have phoned me on the Tuesday, so I suspected right away that she'd possibly been killed. And he had an idea of his own as to who was responsible. They always blame the husband in murder cases, so possibly Mr Fraser would be a prime suspect. Although I think there might have been one or two others up there. But uh, he was a suspect. And I think the police knew that, you know, they were looking at a murder investigation. By 1999, detectives were convinced that Arlene had indeed been the victim of a violent crime and was dead. But if so, no killer had revealed a mistake. They set about proving their suspicions in stages. First, that Arlene was not alive. The proof of death, which is what we were doing, the proof of death in relation to Arlene is about closing doors of life possibilities. So no activity on her bank or any finances for X period of time. No apparent interaction with pharmaceutical outlets for medication that she, she needed in the UK, not just locally, in the UK. Similarly with her contact lenses, her renewable contact lenses. N no activity in that regard. Telephony, nothing that would suggest contact with friends, family. All of these elements had to be proved in a negative sense to be able to then say it looks very much like there's just no evidence that this woman is alive. Nat Fraser went about his life, running his fruit and veg business around the town, in and out of the family home on Smith Street. He maintained uh, an impression that he thought she had gone on holiday. And I remember saying to Nat, this is some length of holiday that Arlene's going on and, and even then he tried to maintain know that it was credible she's gone off to Spain and despite trying to reason with Nat that this is so out of character how, how can you really believe this of Arlene it, it just seemed illogical incredible but he couldn't but maintain 
that position because to give an inch would be a weakness in the sense of it would have would have given ground to back towards uh, where he didn't want to go. Arlene's father and sister, meanwhile, were finding it hard to cope. It was really difficult because one minute you're living quite a normal life, you know, you're just every day, you're going to work, you've got two children, you're doing your housework, etc. And then all of a sudden you, you've stepped into this really almost dark life, you know, when you're talking, I mean, the word murder, you know, you're talking about that, that's horrible. 18 months after Arnie's disappearance, some in the police had concluded there'd been foul play. And privately, some acknowledged that, that they had a suspect, the same man that the family believed responsible, the man who was about to face charges for the attack on Arlene five weeks before she went missing, Nat Fraser. There seemed to be no other theories possible. The question has to be who would gain the most from Arlene's disappearance? Now, in terms of motivation, Nat had a huge amount of motivation to, to, to get rid of Arlene. And statistically speaking, um, when a woman is murdered, in about half of cases, it's a partner or ex-partner who turns out to be to blame. So Nat Fraser is going to be an obvious suspect. The number one motivation was that he was already awaiting criminal trial for her attempted murder just weeks before she disappeared. So freedom, if she wasn't there to give evidence, was, was, was obvious. The second thing is we knew that she had been in talks with her solicitor around about a divorce settlement, a six-figure divorce settlement, which was going to hugely damage him financially. Motivation number two, with Arlene out of the equation, he's not going to lose his money. If Arlene was no longer there, he would get back into the family home, he would control that, he would get back with the kids and control that. All of his finances, he would be back in control. So from a perspective of motivation, there was no shortage of motivation. Whilst there were still plenty of people in Elgin who supported the popular Nat Fraser, time was not on his side. By the second anniversary of Arlene's disappearance, there seemed no sensible reason to support the claim that she had abandoned her children and left home. It was only the passage of time, weeks, months, years with some individuals before they began to reflect on the, the, the likelihood of this as being sensible. You know, birthdays had passed, Christmases had passed. The kids, she was a devoted mother. The one thing that we knew was that she was a devoted mother. And yet, birthdays passed, Christmases passed. It, just, it, it was absolutely illogical. I mean, obviously, the, the police were getting information from all angles about Arlene. They would talk to her friends. They would talk to Nat Fraser. Um, and most importantly, they talked to the people that actually, you know, really, really know her. But Nat had an impregnable alibi, and there was no body to confirm Arlene was dead. Neither Arlene nor her remains had been found. She might still be alive. So what charge could detectives possibly bring? If she had been murdered, they needed the killer to reveal a mistake. Nat Fraser, a suspect as time passed for something. But for what?
turning point in the case came when a key piece of evidence was uncovered. An Elgin mechanic revealed that he'd sold a vehicle to a friend of Nat Fraser. The case went very quiet, and then there was talk of a car being used, a beige Fiesta. We uncovered a significant break for the first time in relation to uh, a vehicle. And police were very excited about this, and I think it is relevant to the inquiry. And the Ford Fiesta had been purchased the night before Arlene had gone missing, the 27th of April, by a very close associate of Matt Fraser in circumstances that could only be described as very covert, cash in hand and say nothing. There was a third party used to purchase the vehicle. car was purchased the night before Arling went missing and then it was disposed of. And so that, that vehicle, the whereabouts of that vehicle, sightings of that vehicle really re-energised the investigation because we began to believe that the purchase of that vehicle was inextricably linked to her disappearance. Now, could that have been the vehicle that was enticed her out? Police had a lead. They summed it up like this. A car had been bought by a Fraser confidant the day before Arlene had disappeared, and then it had been destroyed. It's very, very strange. Why would you do that? Other inexplicable evidence had been uncovered, like the mystery of the missing and then reappearing wedding rings. The initial crime scene examination of the house within a day of Arlene gone missing, the house was sealed and it was looked at forensically, and including that forensic examination was a full video sweep of the house. Days after that, once the family had moved back into the home, one of the family members recovered from the bathroom three rings, Arlene's wedding ring, engagement ring, and eternity ring. But they hadn't been there during the course of the video. Now, bear in mind, Nat had had fairly regular and free access to the house at that point in time. So the belief was that the rings had been returned to the house by Nat. He was crazy to think that the police hunting for this woman who's gone missing, and even her family wouldn't notice that the rings weren't there and then they've suddenly appeared again. So that really suggests that somebody has gone in and planted those rings, and he's doing it to support his story that she's just run off and she was trying to leave him. But, you know, if she was running off, really trying to run off and leave him, surely she would have taken her rings and tried to sell them for money. It seemed such an obvious mistake from Nat. Why would he not dispose of the rings? Why commit the cardinal error of returning to the scene of a crime, so further exposing himself to suspicion? Alan Smith put it down to Nat's greed. As unbelievable as that might be, it, it is not that unbelievable if you understand how close Nat is to money and, and the value of these rings. And by reintroducing them into the family home was his way of being able to regain control of the rings and their value. Yet another piece of evidence emerged to further draw suspicion on Nat Fraser. His story about Arlene walking out on the family with Nat's cash kept in the house. It simply wasn't true. So his 
assertion was that Arlene had taken the money and disappeared, and it was all part of the, the plan, her plan. But what he was unaware of was that days before Arlene went missing, she'd had humiliatingly had to borrow money from a friend for housekeeping. So she was low on cash. Now, if she had known there was a stash of cash in the house, she wouldn't have had to borrow from a friend. Never would have. So that didn't square. And even if that stash had been uncovered post-borrowing money, Arlene would not have gone missing without having repaid her friend the money. So that whole staged piece of theatre by Nat to again build on the fact she's gone missing and ran off and abandoned her family. When you actually looked in behind that, that was a mistake. But there was still a big problem to overcome for police to prove that Nat was a killer. With so many sightings of Fraser miles away from Smith Street, home of Arlene, on the day that she went missing, how could Fraser be responsible? Police dug deeper into the part played in the mystery by a friend of Fraser, a man called Hector Dick. So Hector Dick was a business partner. It was Hector Dick who bought the now-destroyed beige Ford Fiesta and may have helped dispose of Arlene's body. Nat believed that if Arlene's body was never found, there could never be a conviction for murder. So his real driving force, I think, was in her body disposal, her body deposition. In a rare twist at this point in their investigation, the year 2000, police had Nat Fraser exactly where they wanted him in prison. Whilst the investigation into her disappearance and possible murder continued, Fraser had been tried for the assault of Arlene, for which he'd been arrested in 1998. Convicted, he was sentenced to two years in prison. During this time, a third person entered the police investigation, another friend of Nat Fraser, a man called Glenn Lucas. He visited Fraser inside prison. Neither men knew they were being filmed. There was no audio on the tape, so detectives turned to a deaf identity protected lip-reading expert to help uncover what had been said. Nat Fraser was doing most of the talking. And he said something about if your bones are smaller than that, he actually held up his hands. If your bones are smaller than that, they cannot be identified by DNA. The conversation between Fraser and his visitor Glenn Lucas seemed to confirm the prosecution case. Nat knew an awful lot more than he'd admitted. And another point, he actually mimed sawing his wrist when he was talking about cutting up the bones. And Lucas was saying, no, good idea. Please don't suspect you at all. Um, and stuff like that. And telling him that he hoped, he thought very much that Nat would get away with it. Whilst they didn't deliver hard evidence that was able to be admissible in court, what it did do was give us significantly interesting intelligence. And Nat was talking about how many alibis he'd had, how he'd been very sure that when he delivered, made the deliveries, that everybody had seen him. I could tell they were talking about cutting up bones, but I didn't know whose bones. 
I didn't even know that someone was missing, let alone dead. And that reinvigorated the investigation and, and gave us a number of lines of inquiry. The information given by the lip reader did not offer new evidence, but it did confirm the case against Nat Fraser and his harrowing crime. They were talking about a third party called Hecke um, and how much Hecke had helped him. There was mention of a car and a mobile phone and I don't know what or how he had Arlene killed, but there was a mention of a third party um, who had offered or agreed to hurt Arlene for a price. By 2002, Alan Smith felt that he and the team had assembled enough to gain convictions related to the murder of Arlene Fraser against three men. Glenn Lucas was considered an accomplice to a conspiracy alongside Hector Dick, with Nat Fraser the orchestrator of the abduction and murder of Arlene Fraser. We had no hard and fast silver bullet, no forensic DNA linked between the victim and the, and the perpetrator. We didn't have the luxury of that in this investigation. Despite the absence of a piece of smoking gun evidence, Fraser, Hector Dick and Glenn Lucas were charged. What followed transformed Elgin from a delightful market town on the coast to the scene of complex legal arguments in court and the continued probing by police into what had happened to Arlene Fraser. Elgin and the picturesque Moray Firth became a temporary home to legal experts and senior detectives as prosecution and defense teams argued about, amongst other things, whether Nat Fraser and his alleged accomplices could ever get a fair trial in the small town. Eventually, it was decided to move the case to another town, Dingwall, 52 miles away. But four years after her disappearance, three men, including her husband, were due to stand trial for the murder of Arlene Fraser. The case was thought by some dangerously thin, but as the trial neared, one of Nat Fraser's friends turned against him. He thought that he could confide in other people and that they would remain loyal to him. It didn't occur to him that they would not be loyal to him. Hector Dick now offered to support the prosecution case, and he made an amazing revelation. He claimed that Fraser had hired a hitman from down south, that Arlene had been abducted, killed, her body dismembered, and then her body was ground up and, um, and burned, and then her ashes were disposed of. He also claimed that Fraser had asked him to acquire a car to help with the abduction. Charges against Hector Dick were dropped, as were those against Glenn Lucas, at last, Arlene's sister could have her day in court to put the record straight about Arlene. She was far from relaxed about it. Nothing was certain about the outcome. Being a witness in a high court <laughs> is very, very scary. It's really scary. Well, it was quite an experience because uh, you're in the box. You try to answer these questions and half the time, my hearing aids weren't working, <laughs> so it was a bit of a challenge. It's just not a nice atmosphere at all. Um, they have a way of doing things, and you're, a, you're asked a question, and it's a yes or no, 
and you come away feeling very frustrated because they've asked the question, but you want to say, but, you know, um, <laughs> but no, it's a yes or no. So you, you, you feel kind of unfulfilled. What would be the outcome? Had Nat Fraser made a killer's mistake, would he be found guilty of the murder of Arlene Fraser? Carol Gillies and her father Hector attended on the verdict of the court in January 2003, just three months short of five years since Arlene had disappeared. Nat Fraser was found guilty. The judge offered his opinion of Arlene's killer. The judge made it very clear that he felt that this was an evil crime. It was without any care for anybody else. It was planned, it was brutal, it involved other people, it even hurt, you know, his own child. So when the when the judge described him as evil, that's quite a big step to take. That's all that's almost saying there is no mitigation in what you did whatsoever. But if the people of Elgin thought that it was case closed, they were wrong. Nat Fraser would appeal and his conviction would be quashed. Well, today's the day we'll find out if the police and prosecution have withheld evidence, eh? If they're allowed to withheld, hold evidence. In 2008, after a series of court hearings both in Scotland and in London, on a legal technicality related to the Crown's evidence about the rings found in the Fraser family home. There was a question, a technical question, in relation to the integrity of the chain of evidence and the way that those rings were handled by the police. And on the basis of that, uh, the conviction was quashed um, because the rings played such a significant part in the first trial. And that was devastating. It was devastating for the police and the inquiry team, but it was doubly devastating for Arlene's family. Oh, it was, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. And of course we were disappointed. We were bitterly disappointed. The quashing of the conviction for the whole family was just devastating, absolutely devastating. Um, the whole court process for each and every one of us was, an, it was just a living nightmare. It seemed so unfair to everybody involved. Buoyed by his success in winning his appeal, Nat Fraser reverted to type. The old Nat came back. He, it, it was as if everything had lifted and he was back to being the cheeky chappy on the high street in Elgin delivering his fruit and veg. He could not contain himself. And, and the family had to endure that. And it was hard, and it was hard. But uh, he, he reverted to type. Nat reverted to type. And so that absolutely was all the motivation that was needed, if any was needed, to, to, to get this train back on the track. Let's get this uh, investigation and, and redouble our efforts to get him back into court. Police and prosecutors reconsidered their evidence. It may have seemed easier to let the investigation rest, but detectives wanted to take their case back to court. And so he went on trial for a second time, and this, again, was the first time that uh, an individual who had a conviction quashed, was re-indicted 
and, and, and put on trial for murder for the same crime. In 2012, Nat Fraser returned to court charged with the murder of his wife, Arlene. Would the case against him once again convince a jury? Had he made a mistake, or would the cheeky chappy win the day and walk free? We always remember sitting in the room. We could hear them saying, jury verdict, court three, jury verdict, court three. And uh, we up the stairs we went, and I mean, hearts were beating, absolutely beating. She need not have worried. For a second time, a Scottish jury found Nat Fraser guilty. It was just uh, the the relief. You, you try not to be, you know, jump in the air. You know, you try to stay composed, but the relief is unbelievable. Just unbelievable because the alternative was that you would just walk through the doors and it would have all been in vain. And, you know, and, and Arlene would still be out there and that seems so unfair. Arlene's body remains undiscovered. It's somewhere out there, but the trial outcome did bring some consolation. I don't suppose you could call it joy, but it was a relief because we were down in London at the Supreme Court and uh, it didn't seem to be going too well for us. Uh, so I was, I was a bit worried. Nat Fraser was sentenced to life in prison for a second time. He will serve a minimum of 17 years. It had taken 14 years to bring him to justice. What was the key mistake which convinced a second jury to find him guilty? It was the crime scene itself which betrayed the truths Nat Fraser wanted to be kept hidden. If he was to be believed, the town of Elgin had been harboring a selfish mother who had taken what money the family had and then set off on an extended holiday to Spain having abandoned her children. But why would she leave behind vital medicine and her glasses? The unlikely claims by Fraser that a devoted mother would abandon her children, a wife who had already sought refuge from the abuses of her husband, did not ring true. Too many people knew too much about the nature of Arlene and that of Nat Fraser. Nat Fraser thought he'd planned the perfect murder um, but what he couldn't do is erase people's memories. He couldn't erase the things Arlene had told her solicitor and her friends about their relationship. The fact that he tried to kill her previously. They couldn't erase the fact that she was a, a wonderful mother and that she cared about her children. And when she didn't turn up to pick up her children from school, that that rang alarm bells. That was out of character for her. So that, for many, is the killer's mistake which Nat Fraser made planning a story which asked people to believe that a doting mother and family woman would leave behind her children and, for what it's worth, vital medication too. It was that which convinced police, two juries and her sister that Nat Fraser was guilty of murdering Arlene Fraser, a woman who nobody could believe would abandon her children. She wouldn't do that to her family and her parents and her sister. She just wouldn't, she, because she knows us. She knows how we would, you know, the grief, the worry. There's no way that she would put us through that. No way. He excelled at sports, built for battle. Jesse Matthew had the physical physique of a quintessential American football player. Large enough to be offered to play at the college level. When his college football days were over, Jesse stayed strong, 
popular in his hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia. You know, he was from this community. He played football in our local high school. He helped coach football in one of our private schools in Charlottesville. He was frequently seen figure on our downtown pedestrian mall. His first victim was 21-year-old student Morgan Harrington, abducted on a prestigious college campus. Eventually, Morgan would be found dead. Five years later, Jesse Matthews snatched a second student, Hannah Graham, from the same university town. We were against an apex predator who was comfortable abducting, raping, and murdering a girl. Detectives gather evidence until a picture of a suspect emerges. Which piece of the jigsaw puzzle will reveal Jesse Matthew? What would be the killer's mistake? It would have been really fun seeing how she turned out. Morgan Harrington's mom. Uh, Morgan's not here anymore because she was abducted and murdered in 2009. Who would think our precious little Morgan would interface with a serial murderer in a nice town like Charlottesville, Virginia and be taken down? Um, but that is indeed what happened. Charlottesville, a nice little college town. It was college towns that the serial murderer who had snatched Jill Harrington's daughter preferred when preying on his victims. In 2009, Morgan went to see one of her favorite bands at the John Paul Jones Arena on the campus at the University of Virginia, Metallica. Her father is Dr. Dan Harrington. She had wanted to be at that concert uh, for about six months before, they, uh, before the concert occurred. She went to go to the concert. I, I always have believed in leave-taking. I don't just sit on the couch and say, bye-bye. I get up and go see them out. And she got in her car and, you know, put down her mirror, fixed her lipstick and leaned out and said, 241, Mama. 241, a Harrington family saying. 241, I love you too much, forever, and once beyond forever. Morgan, a student at Virginia Tech, two hours' drive from the UVA campus, set off. She arrived to meet friends before heading to the concert. When inside, she had an accident. Witnesses would later describe to her family and friends what had happened. We saw her fall on the way to the bathroom. You know, it's a concert and the lights are crazy and she hit her head. So by the time she got to the bathroom, she was bleeding from an open gash and she went outside in the cold and she walked around for 45 minutes. There's a rule at the John Paul Jones. No readmittance once you've left. Morgan was spotted, unsteady on her feet, outside the arena. As she began to feel stronger, Morgan messaged her friends, saying that she'd make it back to where she was staying in the student town. So she called a cab company. When she was picked up in the cab, she's going to her destination, and she realizes that she doesn't have enough money for the fare. She almost has enough, but she just doesn't quite have the full fare. 
The taxi driver is believed by several detectives to have offered Morgan a free ride home in exchange for some sort of sex act. Morgan is so offended, she jumps out of the cab, wants to be so far away from this person that she literally leaves that cab running. Morgan's friends return from the concert expecting to see her, but she was not where they'd agreed to meet, and she wasn't returning their calls. Morgan is quickly reported as missing. The next day, a search of the campus turns up a troubling discovery. And on October 18th, a lacrosse player found the ID about Morgan. On a bridge, on a walkway, something was wrong. We got the call that Morgan first had been found outside John Paul Jones Arena. And I came in, Dan was sitting here, and we were waiting for her. He said, oh, you know, Charlottesville police called, they found Morgan's purse. And that was like the elevator plummeted because you knew. If her purse was gone, she would have been on the phone crying. She w it, we would have heard from her. So I said, where is she? Nobody knew in those early days that Morgan had tried to get a taxi ride home. So nobody suspected a cab driver in her disappearance, which was a mystery. She was officially designated missing. The Harringtons would have to wait 101 days for more news about Morgan. Morgan Harrington has hundreds of waves to jump at the beach in the Outer Banks. Help us bring her back. We brought in uh, external people to uh, search for Morgan. We had 2,000 people in Charlottesville who were searching for her. How do you speak about someone who is missing? I don't even like the word. It's not descriptive. You know, my, my reading glasses are missing because I'm careless with them. We were not careless with our daughter. She was stolen from us. The search in the weeks after Morgan disappeared was fruitless. Life got back to normal in Charlottesville. Nobody suspected 27-year-old Jesse Matthew, who was working as a cab driver in Charlottesville. He'd returned to his hometown after five years away. Morgan's life thus far had been one of middle-class surroundings, comfortable home. What of Jesse Matthew? He came from a devout Christian family in Charlottesville. His mother, concerned at his adolescent behavior, had moved him from the town to live nearby, but surrounded by Virginia farms, and not the temptations of drugs and crime in the city. He lived in what's called the North Garden area of Charlottesville, and maybe hunted on the farm it's important to remember that detail. Matthew knew the farms and fields which would one day be scoured for evidence of the missing Morgan Harrington. Once out of the town, young Jesse started to progress at school. Not academic, but big and successful at sports. He went to high school in Charlottesville. Uh, you know, he was uh, an athlete. Jesse came to understand himself purely in physical, in almost animalistic terms. He was this muscular, physically strong, dominant individual, and that's all he was. If you lived in Charlottesville, Virginia, it was not easy to miss Jesse Matthew. Tim Longo would one day become chief of police in the city. He got to know all about Jesse, the talented American footballer. For the life that Jesse led, size really mattered and his strength would become a focus of the later investigation. Jesse was a massive figure 
he was a large man, and I suspect uh, in in uh, in those days when he was engaged actively in athletics, he was suspect. I would suspect he was uh, a very intimidating uh, uh, figure on the field, if you will. In 2003, the intimidating football player got a place at university. He didn't last long. Um, he then went to Liberty University on a football scholarship. Um, there was an uh, an accused rape there that no one prosecuted. Inquiries are made about his relationship with this young lady. He says it's consensual, and he says that he didn't do anything, never forced anything on her, that this was somebody that he had a relationship, and it was consensual on both sides. And then suddenly, Jesse Matthew is gone. The 21-year-old Jesse Matthew had been a suspect, but was not charged. He was asked to leave instead. And the next term, Jesse discovers that there's always room at a college for another football player and that there are more women to abuse. He went to Christopher Newport. There was a rape there. This is a man who's moving from college to college, committing a series of sexual assaults on women. But this time, the campus, the college, it's all hush-hush. Nobody will talk. And they're not being reported to the police. The colleges are handling them internally. They all rely on privacy laws. They can't disclose the information for the sake and the privacy of the students that may or may not be involved. When Jesse Matthew gets rewarded for his sporting prowess, for his physical prowess, I think that he would not have understood the difference between exploiting that prowess on the sports field and explo exploiting that prowess with women to attack and abuse women. On both campuses, it appeared that one student had made a claim about another, Jesse Matthew, who had, in turn, claimed that acts of sex had been consensual. Matthew evades arrest. He is not DNA swabbed. It's no longer a university problem. They're able to perhaps tell that the victim, the student, that the problem has been removed, and nothing gets done. There is no thorough diligent police investigation into the assault of this young lady. There's something about the pattern of offending, the persistence of it, and the intensity of it, which suggests to me that this activity is all-consuming for Jesse Matthew. It is who he is, it's who he becomes, it's what his life is about, the pursuit of this quest to satisfy his violent and sexual urges. That is all he is. He shapes his life to facilitate the activity. It fits in with the more important quest meaning to his life, which is the pursuit of these animalistic, predatory urges. Jesse Matthew was a danger to women, but was not on the police records for rape, so he was still to yield his DNA to the US national database called CODIS. DNA is the detective's friend. With it, crimes can be more easily linked to an offender. Without it, rapists like Jesse Matthew can go undetected. He was yet to make the mistake of being arrested for a crime which required a DNA swab. So he was free to attack again. In 2005, Jesse Matthew had given up on being a student, but he was working in another university town, Fairfax City, Virginia. There are six college campuses within a 10-mile radius of Fairfax City. 
Matthew was a regular at university events which allowed him to prey on undergraduates who assumed themselves safe, but who were not. Brian Harris was a homicide hunter for 20 years. He's been investigating the Jesse Matthew timeline. In September 2005 in Fairfax City, there was yet another sexual assault victim. It is as if he is a wild animal. All he knows, all he is aware of, all he is focused on are his urges. But she was a survivor. And the woman remembers enough to be able to generate an e-fit, so they are able to create a physical likeness of him. And he also leaves behind some DNA. The trouble is DNA is pretty useless unless the person who's left the DNA has been swabbed and placed on the DNA database. As his DNA was not on CODIS, the national database, no link could be made to Jesse Matthew. This was the E-Fit image and was what detectives had to go on in search of the Fairfax City rapist. Jesse was upset when teased by friends that it looked a little like him. Eventually, they'd all laugh it off. We have him getting upset at being recognised potentially in the photo fit. Upset. Um, now that's not a, the kind of emotional reaction that you you would anticipate for somebody that was able to do the things that he did. For somebody who is so predatory, so so obsessed with his with pursuing his his sexual and violent urges. He projected a public image of a playful, gentle giant. I guess there's no other way to describe it. He he kind of had that image in people's minds that he is not the kind of person the kind of spirit that's capable of something this horrific I think that's what people felt there are indications that this is not somebody out of touch with human emotion entirely I mean you just don't get people defending you if you are devoid of any human emotion but the psychotic serial killers that we know don't get people standing up in their defense Opportunity after opportunity to arrest Jesse Matthew for sex crimes had come and gone over a four-year period between 2002 and 2006. In 2007, he was back in Charlottesville working as a cab driver with a job on the side. He played football in our local high school. He helped coach football in one of our private schools in Charlottesville. Uh, he was a, a frequently seen figure uh, on our downtown pedestrian mall. He was well-known. The journey from schoolboy athlete to college footballer via two campuses before returning to Charlottesville was complete. As the search for Morgan Harrington continued in 2009, nobody knew about his sexual predator past and about the rape in Fairfax City. The evening that Morgan went missing, Jesse Matthew was just the gentle giant who was working the cab shift on the night of the concert at the main UVA campus when Metallica were in town detectives would not discover for a long time that Matthew was working the taxi rank nearby. There was something else they were yet to discover. Morgan was looking for a ride. During the same time, Jesse Matthew has suddenly stopped taking cab calls. The cab company describes the night for Jesse as being extremely busy, constant call after call after call. But around 9.30, Jesse stopped answering. They couldn't get a hold of him. This is the exact same time that Morgan went missing. 
That piece of evidence would remain unknown for another six years. How, after all, would investigators have uncovered it? They would need to request the records to want them. They would have to suspect Jesse Matthew. They didn't. No witnesses had seen him with Morgan. No security cameras had captured the moment that he picked her up in his cab. Three months after being reported missing, a farmer living not far from where Jesse's mum had moved the Matthew family years before broke the deadlock in the search for Morgan Harrington. Morgan was missing for 101 days before her body was discovered. It's hard to believe this, but having someone find the body is, is a blessing because otherwise they are just forever lost. And so knowing that Morgan was murdered was far less concerning to me than not finding her body. The body was actually a collection of bones. Clothing was also found. That was how police were confident it was Morgan Harrington. What did show up was her T-shirt, which was a, a Pantera T-shirt that uh, was very unique, that had blood on it. And out of that blood, a DNA match, a DNA profile was developed and that DNA match matched other cases in years past, other sexual assaults that had happened. Specifically, the DNA matched that found on the victim of the Fairfax City rape. Detectives now knew that whoever had killed Morgan had raped the student in 2005. But again, without a cross-check on the CODIS database, the identity of the attacker remained unknown. A year passed, still no breakthrough. Metallica helped keep the publicity levels high in the hunt for Morgan's killer. They called Dan uh, two days after Morgan was abducted and said, as fathers, as fathers, we are outraged. How can we help you? Hi, I'm James of Metallica. Back in 2010, our band offered $50,000 to help catch the person responsible for murdering Morgan Harrington. If you've seen the person in this sketch or have any information about this case, please contact your local police or submit your information online. Despite the high profile of the crime, Jesse Matthew was still not a suspect. As the years passed, police and Jill Harrington knew that sexual predators who kill don't stop until they're caught. I was told early in the investigation that it was most likely, most likely, that Morgan's killer would be found from DNA on another body during a press conference. I said, it's too late for Morgan, but please, let's work together and save the next girl. Because I knew we, we were against an apex predator who was comfortable abducting, raping, and murdering a girl, and I didn't want him to get another one. An apex predator is defined as an animal with no superior in its natural habitat, the king of the jungle, unstoppable. Jesse Matthews cannot conceive of not succeeding in this domain. Uh, he always has succeeded when he, he's applied himself physically. Uh, his understanding of women and of, and of uh, how to satisfy his sexual urges are such that the only route open to him is to continue to persist and to use force. And I do feel that there is such a thing as a predator. Predator is just probably the best characterization one could provide. This person is in this town. He's, in, he's a local boy. This is homegrown talent. He, he is comfortable here, and predators stay where they're comfortable. 
Matthew, after Morgan's murder, did stay on in Charlottesville. Again, ironically, a year after she had been killed, Matthew was arrested. It would be another near miss in the search for Morgan's killer because he was not asked for his DNA. In 2010, Jesse Matthew is arrested for criminal trespass. It's not an offense where a DNA sample is required. It's a misdemeanor offense. It's like getting a slap on the wrist. So who knows that day that he was arrested for criminal trespass, what Jesse Matthew, what his intent was. Still without Matthew's DNA, there was no forensic evidence to link him to any of the sex crimes. And without witnesses to his attacks or images of him captured on security cameras when on the prowl, he was free to attack again, and that was what the predator planned. Early one morning in 2014, Charlottesville Chief of Police Tim Longo received a call. I was in Texas teaching a class to a group of police officers, and I got up one morning and there was a, uh, an email from a mother from Northern Virginia. And I'll paraphrase the email. It basically said, Chief Longo, help find my daughter's friend. I didn't know what she was talking about. I, I had just gotten to Texas. I wasn't aware of what had occurred over the weekend, so I quickly called home to find out that uh, a 19-year-old University of Virginia student uh, had come missing over the weekend. By the end of the day, I had made a decision I needed to come home and meet two people that I would come to know, and uh, John and Susan Graham. The Graham family was British, working and studying in the United States, and their daughter Hannah was the young student who had gone missing. This one particular night, she went out with her friends, she was celebrating, she had a few drinks. She went to one bar and another bar. At the same time, this very same night, Jesse Matthew, he is also out, and he is also bar hopping. There's an ongoing debate about the use of security cameras in towns and cities. Charlottesville has few in public spaces, but it does have a lot of cameras in private spaces like stores on the downtown mall in Charlottesville. Jesse Matthews Knight was about to be captured on camera. His well-known figure would register in the worlds of a lot of witnesses. He went to at least three different bars. At each bar, every bartender, all the employees still remember Jesse Matthew. Why? He was a nuisance. He was hitting on women. He was making inappropriate comments and advances towards numerous women that they complained to the bartenders and the waitresses. Jesse Matthew, what was his reply? That he was out to pick up women. A few streets away, Hannah Graham was figuring out how and where to meet up with friends. Hannah Graham, unbeknownst to her, her path would cross with Jesse Matthew. Her friends had previously offered to give Hannah a ride. She didn't want to be a trouble to anyone, so she said she would walk. But Hannah was confused. She got lost and even texted that she was disorientated and that she didn't know where she was. She's 19 years old. Bright talented but 19. You know I worked very hard in the early stages of this investigation not to allow the image of this sweet young girl to be tarnished because of the decisions that she may have made that night whether it be alcohol or something else. I don't think she deserved that. I don't think her family deserved that and I worked very hard to make sure that uh, we didn't paint that image but the reality of it is she is a 19 year old girl and uh, she made her own decisions that night 
and uh, I'm not going to second guess those decisions. She was somewhere around 14th Street. This is where it is believed Jesse Matthew picked her up. Witnesses later said that they heard a woman scream, no, I won't get in that car with you. Hannah never met up with her friends, did not appear the next morning. So that began an investigation that, that day when I met John and Susan Graham that uh, launched what would come to be the largest ground search in the history of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, we spent uh, many, many days uh, first in the city of Charlottesville, which is about 10 square miles. Over a thousand people were involved in the search for Hannah. They scoured numerous areas of town. And then uh, in concentric circles began moving outward uh, into Albemarle County, which is our neighboring uh, jurisdiction, some 700 square miles here. The Beta Bridge is an iconic place at the University of Virginia. Students are encouraged to express themselves by writing on it. Volunteer groups use it as a place to issue rallying cries for helpers. Hannah had been part of one of those groups. At another bridge nearby, her family and those of Morgan Harrington would one day meet. The anniversary of Morgan's um, death occurred during the time that Hannah was missing. And uh, we had, um, as we did every year, had a um, memorial ceremony at the bridge and we had uh, media there and uh, the Grahams were there. The University of Virginia um, was also there. As teams of detectives and volunteers search the woods, fields and farms throughout the county beyond Charlottesville, Chief Longo and his team set about talking to witnesses, combing through what security footage they could find. Thanks to some video surveillance footage that we discovered on our downtown pedestrian mall, where uh, we believe that Hannah was abducted by Mr. Matthew. We were able to discern his image. It was the turning point in the hunt for a killer. All of a sudden, they had pictures of Jesse Matthew. And it was interesting, of course, at that time, he had dreadlocks and a heavier beard. And one morning, I looked at my Facebook, and this woman had messaged me, and she said, I worked with Jesse Matthew, and here's a picture of him from six years ago. When you looked at the, the composite, and they were exact, I, I was stunned. There is a lot of evidence which establishes that Matthew's victims fought for their lives. While this is going on, Jesse Matthews shows up to work with a swollen jaw. Witnesses tell police that actually Matthew has had a swollen jaw, which they think is a bit suspicious. He says it's toothache, but possibly it's a sign that his victim has hit him, and that's, that's the cause of the swelling. This causes people to reflect and think about, could this be the guy? No different than when you think back to Fairfax City and those original composite sketches when Jesse Matthew, his own co-workers, looked at those composite sketches and would tease him, telling him, they look like you. Suspicion of Jesse Matthew was building. The guy with the unmistakable physique was all too clearly walking along the mall with the young woman who'd gone missing. Police now wanted to talk to Jesse Matthew. The way we were able to develop sufficient probable cause to obtain an arrest warrant for him uh, for abduction once the warrant is obtained, when they go inside the apartment. They also check his car, 
two vital DNA finds are made, including Hannah's on the passenger side of Matthew's vehicle, proof that she'd been with him, and then a second DNA find. And they recover a pair of shorts, which they later find traces of his DNA and Hannah's as well, which is extremely incriminating. That swab they did on his car door, they also find Hannah's DNA, which places her in his car. He doesn't even try to hide the shorts that have Hannah's DNA on it. Something that many killers would do, would be very aware of doing, uh, but so primitive, so predatory is is Jesse Matthew that he doesn't, he's not even aware of, he's not considering detection. He's simply focused, like an animal, on the pursuit of his immediate urges. The shorts and other materials are dispatched for analysis. They have a lot of incriminating evidence, but it needs to be processed. It has to go to a lab. But it takes over a week for those results to come back. In the meantime, the detectives have spoken to Jesse Matthew. He has not given his DNA. He has denied any kind of involvement. We were not in a position to detain him at that time. Uh, so he was free to leave, and in fact, he did leave. Matthew decides to get out of town quick. And then he disappears. Just like he disappeared from his two football teams. He's gone, and he's in the wind. He, in fact, left the Commonwealth of Virginia. He made his way to, uh, to Texas. Had Jesse Matthew, the killer, made his biggest mistake? The ever-increasing use of surveillance cameras had put him in the frame for abducting Hannah Graham. What had he done with her? The seriousness of the allegations against him would mean officers could now obtain his DNA. Would that finally reveal his crimes? Whilst detectives awaited the return of forensic tests, he was on the run in Galveston, Texas. A month after being seen on the downtown Charlottesville Mall with Hannah Graham on the night that she went missing, the runaway Jesse Matthew was caught. On a beach in Galveston, Texas, a woman saw his image, saw his face, and recognized him. And so she called the Galveston Sheriff's Office and she said, I think I know this guy. Matthew was arrested and soon, via video link, being processed for a return to Charlottesville. Are you Jesse Matthew Jr.? Yeah. Mr. Matthew, my name is Judge Henry. You have two charges this morning. You have got a fugitive from justice warrant out of Virginia for abduction of a person with intent to defile. You have got a Galveston County charge of false information to a peace officer. Do you understand that? Those who knew him or of him in his hometown reacted with skepticism. A lot of people in this community would have said to me early on in this investigation, you've got the wrong guy. There's no way in the world that this guy could have committed this offense. He was well-known, and there were people who just said, you know, Chief, <laughs> you're barking up the wrong tree. On October 18, 2014, in a wooded area rarely visited by anyone, and not far from where Jesse Matthews had lived after his move from downtown Charlottesville, the body of a young woman was discovered by one of the search teams. It was about 10 miles out where we discovered the remains of Hannah Graham behind a, a house that actually had been for sale for some period of time. When discovering both the bodies of Morgan and Hannah, detectives and analysts were struck by the unusual ferocity of the attacks. The level of violence that, that Jesse inflicts on these young girls is horrifying. 
and its extreme and excessive and unnecessary level of violence. Even in the most horrific of sexual and violent offences, we get some attempt by the offender to relate to the victim in some way or another, to some, even some acknowledgement of their humanity, but we're not getting that at all with Jesse. We're not even getting any acknowledgement of the possibility of being detected. He arrogantly is, is using the same MO. There's fairly strong evidence to suggest that Morgan fought back. When her body finally was recovered, her bones, her skeleton revealed, um, her ribs had been broken, her arms had been fractured. It suggests that she was trying to fight back. There doesn't seem to be any particular um, positioning of the body. His offences uh, and everything that he does within the offences are simply expressions, are extreme expressions of his violent and sexual urges. Detectives considered the evidence. Jesse Matthew is in custody. He has charges, basically kidnapping against him. As each piece of that jigsaw puzzle is flipped over, we're getting that clear portrait, and the portrait is Jesse Matthew. But the investigation's not over. They know who they're looking at. They gotta fill in those pieces. Whilst he was in custody, detectives detailed their case. He was very openly interested and Hannah Graham, that was clear by that video that depicted him walking one way and her walking another. And very quickly thereafter, the image of the two of them together. In the time that he spent with her, brief as it was on the downtown mall, they were seen in a local bar and restaurant. He purchased two drinks, presumably one for himself and, and the other for Hannah. And then he was last seen leaving the mall in her company. Having established he was the last person seen with Hannah, investigators now turned to the forensic evidence. First, the shorts found in his bedroom. On those shorts was semen that belonged to Jesse Matthew. Which means they can generate a full profile and match that DNA profile from Jesse Matthew, both to Morgan, to Hannah, and to that Fairfax rape all those years ago. To say that it was a breakthrough in the Morgan Harrington investigation would be an understatement. Those puzzle pieces that were flipped out on that table, they're flipping them over. And certainly that forensic evidence not only connected Jesse Matthew to Hannah Graham's death, but uh, to the death of Morgan Harrington and to the violent sexual assault of a, uh, a woman in Fairfax City uh, many years before. They know that Matthew's DNA was on the shirt worn by Morgan Harrington. And when they did eventually recover her shirts, they found some DNA on there, some blood, which possibly came from her assailant and maybe it came from a scratch or from a, a bite or something. It suggests that she was fighting for her life. Many years had passed uh, since Morgan's disappearance and the discovery of her remains. Uh, and frankly, it was a mystery uh, in our community and uh, perhaps across this country as to who was responsible for the death of Morgan Harrington. And to be able to bring that case to closure was a, was a milestone. Would the killer's mistake of being captured on camera lead to his conviction? Virginia is one of 47 states in America which allows defendants to offer a so-called Alford plea. Matthew chose this route when facing charges in Fairfax City. He did not plead guilty but would not contest the charges of rape against him. I think the evidence against Jesse Matthew had this case went to trial was overwhelming. I got to think that one of the reasons why he took the Alfred plea that he did in Fairfax City was there came a point in that trial, I suspect that he realized that the government's evidence against him 
was more than sufficient to, uh, for a fact finder to return a verdict of guilty. Next came his appearance in court for the murder of Hannah Graham, seen on camera with Jesse Matthew. So they're flipping over each piece and they're getting a clearer picture. And who do they see? That jigsaw puzzle with all those pieces being flipped over is a portrait of Jesse Matthew. The Hannah Graham case was just so clear that they had pictures of him with her. And so immediately it was a death penalty case. But Morgan's case, they had still not charged him with Morgan's death. And so finally, after several months, they charged Jesse with Morgan's death. And, and we went to an arraignment in Charlottesville. Matthew again offered an Alfred plea. The big distinction between that plea of guilty in Fairfax City and his guilty plea here in the county of Albemarle was to hear Jesse Matthews say when asked the question, and are you pleading guilty because you are in fact guilty? To hear him say yes, clearly admitting to the murder of these two women was, um, it, it was uh, an incredible moment for their family uh, and, and certainly for this community to hear him accept responsibility for those horrific acts. Jesse Matthew got seven life sentences to be served consecutively, not concurrently. He yielded any chance for parole or geriatric release, any reason for early release, good behavior or whatever that might mean at a supermax prison. He's serving in the far corner of the state in a supermax. It's called Red Onion. It's a fairly notorious, isolated, hardcore prison. I'm told that he spends almost 24 hours a day in his cell, and that may remain the case. In most investigations, a killer is revealed as having made a number of errors, but there's always one which proves pivotal as detectives piece together their case, which was Matthew's mistake. It was to give police enough of a chance to collect his DNA, which he had avoided doing throughout his predatory criminal career. He had escaped being charged after a campus sex attack in 2002 because there had not been enough evidence, and again in 2003. And, you know, in those early cases where he was sexually assaulting women, they weren't reported to the police, and so they weren't really investigated. And maybe that's why he thought, I can just do this. No one's reporting me. I can move on. I can offend again. He got greedy. Um, but as his offences escalated and became more serious, so did the resources towards tracking him down. And he was leaving DNA each time. All it then took was for him to slip up become a person of interest for the police to take some of his DNA. He essentially got away with attacking women. Um, the endless advances that we know he made alongside these, um, these essentially endorsed, they reinforced the pattern of offending. This is somebody who already had an overinflated sense of self-importance, a sense of invincibility, and there he is getting away time after time with these attacks on women, it was a dangerous precedent. But he was not invincible. He made mistakes. All of the near misses from justice came home to roost because Matthew forgot the role played by cameras in modern towns and cities. CCTV cameras capture her movements pretty much minute by minute. 
they also capture Jesse Matthews and place him with her. It just made sense that video surveillance technology would be one of many ways in which to provide a safe environment for those who would come and enjoy uh, downtown Charlottesville. And we had been making that plea to, to the local governing body for, for some years. And frankly, there was a lot of resistance, not just by the governing body, but there were some citizens that were uh, resistant against the placement of video cameras, even in a public square. I think it became clear to many people in the aftermath of this, uh, this terrible series of events how important uh, such equipment could be, in no other case, the retrospective investigation of, uh, of, a, of a criminal offense. It was a very, very critical piece uh, in this investigation. And it was one that almost certainly saved lives. If Jesse Matthew hadn't been caught, uh, he would have continued offending and the rate of offending would have increased. Um, this is somebody who, this was his life and, and every time he got away with it, it just reinforced his commitment and his belief in the rightness of what he was doing. Jesse Matthews is a predator. I think predators are different stuff, but predators have to pass in the environment where the prey is because that's what they do is they hunt prey. If you look at the footage on the downtown mall when Jesse Matthews saw Hannah Graham, in three strides he went from Fat Albert to Cheetah because he, has to, he had to assume the guise of Fat Albert and, you know, just a big gentle giant. But given the chance, he reverted to his, his real stuff. Being spotted on camera with a girl who was reported missing began a train of events which has left Jesse Matthew in a cell for the rest of his life. I've actually measured it out in my home, uh, just how small a space he has. And for a man his size, he could take two and a quarter steps. Large steps, but that's all. I think the walls are concrete. It must be miserable. I say it's no different than if there was a rampaging bear in our neighborhood. People are not safe with the bear in the neighborhood. People are not safe with Jesse Matthews free and loose in the world. And he will never be that again. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.